Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Anna Funder, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. In Wifedom, you write that you wanted to create a counterfiction to the one in biographies. How do fiction and biography and all the components that constitute this book, how did they lead you down the pathway to counterfiction? Counterfiction is a word that I've made up and um, I have to admit to also making up the word Wifedom, the title of the book. Um, they seemed to be words that were necessary to describe the things I wanted to describe. When I was, I read my way through Orwell and then I read these six varying and quite wonderful, each in their own way, biographies of Orwell. Um, but after I'd finished reading those biographies, I came across the six letters that Eileen O'Shaughnessy, his first wife, wrote to her best friend from their time at Oxford. Her name was Nora. The voice of Eileen in those letters was so hilarious and moving and witty and profound, really, that I went back to the biographies to try and see why it was that I couldn't remember her, this very important woman who was the wife of Orwell's great creative period. Where was she in these biographies? And she was hardly in them at all, um, and certainly not really as a major force in his life or in the Spanish Civil War or supporting him financially or helping him to write better books. And so at that moment, when I realised that she had been left out so drastically, the biographies seemed to me to be fictions of omission. So they had created a portrait of a man who did his work alone and needed no help from family or wife or indeed women in general. So I needed to create a counterfiction the fiction in those biographies and that term suited me really well because I was really lucky to get permission to use these six letters of Eileen's in my own work and I do I use them verbatim and I quote them there in italics but I put them into scenes which are imagined scenes they are scenes of Eileen being inside Eileen's head as she writes the real letters that the real Eileen Hoshamsi wrote to her best friend about her life, about her marriage, about her experiences in war and in work of all kinds. So my fiction is a, a counterfiction as a corrective to these, as I boldly call them, fictions of omission. Who was Eileen O'Shaughnessy before George Orwell? Eileen um, was born into family in South Shields in the north of England. Her father was a customs collector. They were better off than the Blairs. She was extremely clever and was um, head girl as well as ducks of her school. Um, got a scholarship to read English at Oxford in the early 1920s at a time when women had only been allowed to take degrees at Oxford for the last three or four years. So she read English there under Tolkien, among others. After that, 
Eileen went to London and worked really in a range of independent jobs for about nine years, worked in offices that produced, there were sort of secretarial offices that produced, edited and produced people's manuscripts. One of the young women, the so-called oil rag in one of these offices, watched as Eileen, she thought, rewrote a Russian emigre's thesis. And this young girl thought that Eileen should have got the degree that he got because she did so much work on this. She did a little bit of journalism. She worked for an inquiry into effectively sexual health really in London. And when she met Orwell, she had enrolled in a master's in psychology at University College London. So she was a woman of broad interests, um, social justice and literature um, and writing really foremost among them. Well, that brings me to his general attitude towards women. From your research and from your reading, what do you deduce was Orwell's attitude towards women? Well, Orwell's um, had Orwell had a lot of women in his life. He was uh, not particularly close to his father, who he only really met when he was eight. He was close to his mother and particularly to her sister Nellie, his aunt Nellie, and they were. Uh, suffragettes, feminists. His aunt ran a literary salon with luminaries of the day, including um, Besterton and H.G. Wells and Nesbitt and so on. Um, his aunt had also managed to get herself arrested with the Pankhursts and popped into prison for agitating for votes for women. And so that's a very important influence on him, both personally and in terms of um, the intellectual heritage of Orwell as he grows into being, as we know, a man who sees things from an underdog position. He had many literary girlfriends before he got married uh, to Eileen. He liked to discuss his work with them and um, pick their brains and get encouragement and so on. And then he married Eileen, this brilliant uh, literary woman. And during marriage, he had also a lot of affairs with um, again, literary intelligence that could help him um, be interlocutors, sometimes patrons giving him other assistance. Um, so he got a lot from women, but his attitude to women, according to one of his ex-girlfriends, Kay, who knew him very well, was that they were really very secondary. He didn't rate women as writers, he didn't rate Virginia Woolf much, uh, even, and he, another of his girlfriends, Brenda, told a biographer, for instance, well, his attitude towards women, I suppose that was really because he was a sadist. That was something that the biographer left on the cutting room floor to create his, um, as I put it, fiction commission. On, at one level, liked and needed women, and at another level, was very disparaging. Um, and also sexually aggressive. So it's a complex book. I wonder what those earlier biographers would have made of those letters had they been available to them. That's a good question. So the biographers, um, as you point out, didn't have the benefit of these letters. One of the biographers has updated his biography, DJ Taylor, and um, so I haven't looked at that yet, so I don't know um, what use he's made of, of the letters. Um, there were other materials that were available to be found and they could have made 
um, a much more vivid and interesting, important portrait of Eileen in their biographies had they wanted to. So, for instance, Eileen's role in the Spanish Civil War uh, was um, covered up really by all of them in College to Catalonia. Um, but uh, Eileen worked in the political office of the party George was fighting for, and the boss there, an American economist called Charles Orr, left a vivid and admiring portrait of her um, at work in the headquarters of the party. So that was available, and they don't use that. Instead, saying they don't really mention her work during the Spanish Civil War and say things like um, Eileen went to the Spanish Civil War not because she was political but because she followed her husband. Uh, she lived in Barcelona, had a volunteer's post uh, with the ILP and spent her time procuring for him chocolates, cigars and margarine and other treats to send to the front when she could. Full stop, end of story. So um, one would hope that they would have been able to make a much more vivid portrait of Eileen with these letters. But really judging from the material that they had and didn't use, um, it seems to me that she didn't seem to them perhaps very important. Wifedom is also an address to the patriarchy and here's a wonderful recasting of an Orwellian idea. The dark, double-thinking heart of patriarchy. What do you mean by that? Well, double-think, I really um, was interested in this idea because many people have asked me, do I still admire Orwell? Do I still want to read him and his work? And the answer is yes. Maybe not immediately because I've come out of a long Orwell phase. But I do think that um, some of his essays and his two major novels, the best ones, Animal Farm, which was written with a lot of input from Eileen, and has her voice all over it, uh, and 1984, which was written after the relationship were over, are very important and continue to be important today. They're taught in many schools, my kids have all had them on their curriculum. Uh, we live in an age of rising authoritarianism and also of blanket surveillance. So an analysis of um, how power or a revolution might happen when powerful, um, you know, are corrupted by their own power, like a media farm or the surveillance state um, at constant war with two other power blocks in 1984, are very relevant. In 1984, although it explores the idea of double thing, which he says is, this is in the character of Winston Smith, um, the ability to hold two things in mind at the same time. And one of them has to be just below the level of consciousness because if it rose to the level of consciousness, it would bring with it a feeling of guilt. So that applies to the patriarchy in the sense that patriarchy is a system that we all live in. As far as we know on the planet, there is no place that is not organised along patriarchal lines, meaning that um, in, to describe it in very broad brush strokes, men are central to the society, um, have most of the power and the money and the leisure time, and women are support staff 
for crew, as it were. And to imagine that all animals are equal or that we all have equal human rights as we would like to in a world in which that is patently not the case because this patriarchal power system exists, you have to engage in double think. So you have to say we are all equal, um, but you know that women are not equal in terms of the gender pay gap or um, lifetime earnings or in other countries much more extreme things. And you have to keep that knowledge of women's lesser rights below the level of consciousness because if it rose to the level of consciousness, it would, in Orwell's words, bring with it a feeling of guilt. And this is how Orwell's insight and his coining of the term double think proves the usefulness of his work today, for instance, to me, when I examine not just his work, but our contemporary world. This book is very detailed. I wondered, did you feel that you had to be forensic in the sense that you were looking back at biographies that were probably widely accepted and overturning many of the ideas and the concepts behind them? Did did you feel that you had to be doubly sure because what you're proposing might, for example, uh, be disputed? Yes, I was completely terrified for a long time. And my husband, Greg, said to me, what is it with you? First you take on the Stasi, then you take on the Nazis, and now patriarchy. Are you done? By the way, I think I probably am done. But um, I think if you're going to do that also with a figure as important and as wonderful and as revered as Orwell, you really have to get it right. So I was uh, reading the biographies and then I was going to their sources in the footnotes and reading them and seeing what and who had been left out. Some extreme things happened such as Eileen writing to a friend that George, she called him George, as he wanted, um, George has a remarkable political simplicity. One of the biographers, Sir Bernard Crick, simply changed that so that he has Eileen saying that George has a remarkable political sympathy. So I would find that kind of thing. That is an extreme and very obvious example. More often it was just um, leaving out the women by saying the visas were obtained, um, the baby was collected um, after the court hearing um, or whatever it was. Those sorts of language constructions hide the woman who, in Eileen's case, risks her life to get the visas, to get them all out of Spain with Stalin's henchmen on their heels, or has to go alone to collect a three-week-old baby there, adopting across water in London, um, and things like that. So it was, another thing Craig said was, he, he, he said, you're looking for somebody who's invisible to you and you've got this big detective board and you're doing all of this detective work. So I would hope that that reads pretty lightly in the actual text, um, but if anybody is interested in the factual underpinnings, um, there are no numbers on the text, but uh, there are 40 pages of endnotes which refer to each page of the book so that you can see where, who said what, which biographer I'm quoting, um, and all sorts of other details, like the poem that Eileen wrote before she met George, which was called End of the Century 1984, 
in which she imagined a dystopian um, future of telepathy and mind control. So the full text of that poem, for instance, is in the endnotes if anybody's interested. So interested. Um, so I, yes, I did. I felt that I had to do a lot of kind of painstaking research and um, that I really had to, to get it right. And part of that is um, probably just from having taken on such a large figure and such a large topic. And the other reason is I didn't want to get things wrong. You know, if I had found anything that contradicted what I thought or what I was thinking or where my thinking was going, I would have included it or I would have thought differently. And um, I'm sure that that happens in various ways in the process of the six years of writing the book. But what I found generally fit the pattern that I was discovering, which is a pattern of omission of women who helped Orwell or women who he, in one of the biographers, missions, pounced on. My final question really is about your views on George Orwell and his work now, after all this work. Um, he was a hero. I think you admit that he was a, or is a hero to you, a literary hero at least. Has that hero status been diminished somehow through your research and writing? I don't think so. I think what the, my research and writing in this book, writing Eileen back into history, shows is that our image of Orwell, in fact, often our image of um, writers or of great artists or of great actors or directors, you know, Me Too has really been very revealing in this regard. We go we enjoy the artwork and then we would like its creator to be as brilliant and wonderful and moving uh, as the artwork so an artist is not the same as their artwork um, and even though i'm not in any category like although i i this reflects on me as well uh you know we are where the work comes from and to expect for instance, in Orwell's case, that a man who writes a work as grim, as paranoid, as violent, as sadistic, and as misogynistic, say, as 1984, and its vision is all of those things and is acknowledged to be all of those things, to expect him not to have pulled those insights from somewhere deep inside himself um, is sort of naive. You know, I think that writers write from obviously inspiration and passion and um, intellect and emotion, but also from their flaws um, or what might be perceived as a flaw. Many people would say Orwell was a serious uh, in some of his personal relationships. Um, and to expect him not to be when you see a vision in 1984 with the rats or, you know, quite early on in 1984, Winston, his main character, has a, a reverie in which he fantasises about raping women and sitting with both at the moment of climax. You know, these are not things that come from the imagination of a very straightforward, decent, underdog, vanilla, everyman kind of guy. So I think um, 
I'm not trying to pull him down in any way. I'm kind of enriching the picture both of him as a man and an artist uh, and of her. Anna Funder, it's been wonderful to talk to you and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Anna Funder about her new book, Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. It's published by Penguin Random House and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People gift card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.